Welcome to Music Crush, a new music podcast hosted by Flute New Music Consortium. I'm Elizabeth Robinson. And I'm Nicole Reiner. If you like the show, please rate and review it on the platforms wherever you listen to podcasts, particularly on Apple Podcasts. It really helps people find us and grow the show. And of course, you can learn more about Flute New Music Consortium at flutenewmusicconsortium.com. Born in New York City in 1969 to a musical family, composer Paul Richards has been engaged with music since childhood, including forays into various popular styles, the Western canon, and Jewish sacred and secular music through his father, a cantor. All of these experiences inform his creative activities, which have included numerous orchestral, vocal, chamber, and theatrical works. Hailed in the press as a composer with a strong, pure melodic gift, an ear for color, and an appreciation for contrast and variety, and praised for his fresh approach to movement and beautiful orchestral coloration, his works have been heard in performance throughout the country and internationally on six continents. Paul has been commissioned by myriad organizations and ensembles, including Jacksonville Symphony Orchestra, the Boston Brass, Partners for the Arts Abroad, Arizona Commission on the Arts, and the Catalina Chamber Orchestra. He has also been recognized in numerous competitions nationally and internationally. Paul is currently Professor of Music and Head of Composition and Theory at the University of Florida. Paul, thank you so much for joining us today. Welcome. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. So I wanted to back up because we, Flute New Music Consortium has had a relationship with you that has changed over the years. And, and you know, we've we've known you as an organization for a little while. So I wanted to back up and just talk about our history together a little bit. Um, you currently serve as one of FNMC's artistic advisors. Thank you very much, by the way, for that. Been very helpful. Um, before that, we commissioned you to write a solo flute piece for our flute artist competition, The Captivating You Sells Prayer, which is also on FNMC's album, FNMC Presents. And before that, we got to know you first through your participation in FNMC's composition competition. Is that right, Elizabeth? Your solo flute piece, Tomorrow in Australia, was a finalist in 2014. And then you won in 2017 with the flute and piano piece Entanglements. Um, I'm always curious, what drove you to enter the competition as a more established composer? And what advice do you give to younger composers regarding competitions? I think David Cope says it, that competitions are great for the winners and meaningless for the losers. Oh, no. <laughs> it's. I think that's just a really important thing to keep in mind because this is a super competitive field. And... There are tens of thousands of composers, however you define composer, in the United States alone. And a lot of us are pretty ambitious and, and aggressive about getting our work out there. So I've judged a lot of competitions. I know you guys have too. And you can have a lot of really impressive stuff show up in a single round where you've only got a limited space to, to present things. So, I mean, the first thing I try to tell myself and tell composition students is not to get too attached to the results. Mm. Um, you, know, you put your best foot forward and you try, and sometimes there's all sorts of factors that that influence these things. I still enter competitions when I feel like what they offer as a result would be meaningful. Uh, I, I guess I'm, I'm established in a certain way. I've jumped through all the you know academic hurdles pretty successfully, um, but getting one's work out there is is a constant challenge, I think. And when 
something like what you offer, I guess I should say we offer is available where there's a, you know, a, a performances and the opportunity for continued performances. That's really attractive. I know that when I entered the second time, it's because I really appreciated the treatment that I got the first time through that even though I was a runner up, you paid attention to my piece, got it performed, um, promoted it on your website and all those sorts of things. And that's, that's invaluable to a composer. Can you say a little bit more about things you look for in competitions? Uh, I know you and I have spoken about this sort of off the record, but I'm I'm always curious to pick composers' brains when it comes to composition competitions, particularly. Yeah, um, you know, there's certain parts of the cash prizes are, are lovely or whatever, but um, for me, the goal is to get the work out there. So when something, like I say, offers performances or recordings. Um, and particularly performances in in events where the work can be shared with other people who might be interested in it. That's that's the most valuable thing to me. Um, plaques, not so much. You know, in some competitions, just to send you a thank you for entering. Here's your second place trophy or whatever, and that that's kind of meaningless. But when it's something that's respectful of the music and the fact that we're trying to make something to put in front of people, um, that's what I'm looking for. Well, I'm I'm glad that we caught your attention because I love your writing. You write so well for the flute specifically. Do you have any experience with the instrument? No, I've got about a 30 second career as a flute player. I um, when I was 15 or 16 or so, um, my father took me to a Renaissance fair of sorts and um, somebody was selling wooden flutes. And I had played clarinet in middle school and played guitar and piano and was really into Jethro Tull. And, you know, I convinced him to buy me a wooden flute and I couldn't make a sound come out of the thing to save my life. And my brother, who's just a little bit younger than me, uh, grabbed it and instantly made this beautiful tone and it was sort of like, okay, you're the flute player I know. So that was literally that my experience was 30 seconds of blowing badly on a wooden flute. So I just I've relied on score study and um, and a lot of consultation with colleagues. Um, the two pieces that you mentioned that that were contest winners for me uh, were both written for Kristen Stoner, who's longtime flute faculty here at the University of Florida, where I am. Um, we're good friends, and um, when I've written works for her or orchestral works involving flute or whatever, just bang on her door and say, you know, play this, and make sure that things work. Um, and that is super helpful, you know, in the process, then you, you pick up on some, some do's and don'ts. The other thing that I do when I'm writing for any instrument is I play or sing just about everything that I write on some instrument. And even though I'm playing things on a piano, which is obviously wildly different, there's something about sort of making music just just trying to be musical with the lines instead of just having the computer play things back or having it sit just in my imagination that I think is helpful. Um, that's a strategy kind of across the board for me. You mentioned score study, um, and I'm always curious, do you have favorite flute scores that you either refer to or have referred to frequently in the past? For a uh, composition class at IT, I always pull syrinx out. Um, oh, really? Uh, maybe yeah, but it's it's I mean, it's I think it's good flute writing. It's it's just good writing um, when I'm having students write solo works, regardless of the instrument. I feel like that's a really good because it's short, it's compact in certain ways, but also has this kind of great freedom. So I know that work quite well. 
when I did the flute and piano piece for Kristen, um, I remember her giving me kind of a list of favorites and the Prokofiev stood out. It, his work tends to stand out for me generally, but um, the flute sonata definitely jumped out as a as a eye opener. And I know that it's sort of fiendishly difficult in certain ways. I've not shied away from fiendishly difficult myself, maybe as a result of that. What's your compositional process more generally, Paul? Do you tend to choose the instrumentation first or the story? Does it does it depend on the assignment you've given yourself? Yeah, or the assignment that's been given to me. I mean, I'm, I'm always interested in what collaborators are looking for when I'm writing for people. And that tends to help guide things. That's a little hard to answer because it's obviously piece dependent. I have found that I tend to work from kind of a musical idea or musical concept that I want to explore. But then pretty quickly, it's useful for me to have a working title or narrative notion of some kind or some kind of atmosphere that just sort of helps contain the creativity a little bit. It, it helps to be kind of focused if I've got a, a sense of what this thing is ultimately going to be, as opposed to just kind of stuck in in the the techniques of like motive manipulation or things like that. I, I need a kind of bigger picture. I write a lot for voice, and I've been working a lot in opera. And um, in part, there's a lot of reasons why that's appealing to me. But in part, it's because of the atmosphere and sometimes the form kind of already being set. So I think I've learned from that experience when I'm doing instrumental music to provide myself a similar kind of container. That sounds like sage advice for many, many walks of life, actually. <laughs> to find some parameters. Can you tell us about your album, Rough Translations? How did it come about? What is it? This is kind of a pandemic thing, although I started this as an experiment before the pandemic hit. I was my, my initial musical experiences. I've got a musician father. And so I, I grew up with music making in the house, which was super helpful. But the thing that was first attractive to me is probably most people in my generation was the pop music that I was surrounded by. And so I, I was a self-taught guitar player as a kid and I played in rock and jazz bands. And, and that's that aesthetic world has not really totally left me. And I, this became a kind of sort of a thought experiment at first that what we do in the concert music world sometimes feels a little disconnected from the culture at large you know people who i know appreciate arts and other forms sometimes find concert music kind of i don't know just daunting or or or, or confusing in some way I've, i mean i've had people say to me things like i don't understand it and with instrumental music and i i kind of bristle at that but i also get it because i think we're sometimes we're presenting things that are so far removed from the normal listening experience of people that they don't know what heuristics to bring to bear when they're listening and and i don't think that has to do with or the thought experiment was does this have to do with the rhythms i'm using the harmonies i'm using the kind of melodic things or is it really just a timbral issue and i came to think that it's really probably a lot of it has to do with timbre and maybe packaging. So I took some pieces that I'd written, movements from various works or standalone pieces, and tried to reconceive them for, uh, I'll just say electronic instruments. I'm being kind of 
arch about this really for progressive rock band and did all this myself. Like I said, mostly during the pandemic, programmed drums, played the keyboards, guitar, bass, um, some other instruments and synthesized some other parts. And what was interesting, what is interesting to me is the record company, Meyer Media that released it, released it as progressive rock but it literally includes some pieces that that same company has released as contemporary classical. And what's changed is just timbre and I guess the percussive element. And so these are the seven instrumental pieces on there. And it just, I've, I've presented these a couple of times to composition forums of playing like the acoustic originals and then my reworking back to back and the transformations pretty strong, I think, because of the way we listen. I think we listen with these expectations based on prior experience. And the moment you hear a distorted guitar, it triggers a whole different set of ways of listening. And that's that's been fascinating. I've actually got a follow-up that I'm I expect to get the masters on any second now. Where I did the a similar thing, but I used a, a live drummer um, from my faculty and brought in colleagues. Uh, including Kristen playing on one piece. I've got some acoustic instruments along with the electronic stuff and voices used a uh, voice faculty and a um, very talented student from my school. And it's this weird crossover hybrid thing that I hope to release sometime pretty soon. So this, I think it's going to be kind of an ongoing project for me, this, I don't know, style question mark experiment thing. Mm. That's amazing. I hope Kristen is doing some Jethro Tull-like stuff. Please tell I, You me. know, I didn't. <laughs> One foot up. Or... Yeah, I, I, well, I didn't choreograph any. So I'll ask next. <laughs> well, you mentioned Jethro Tull earlier, and I've been waiting for an excuse to bring it up. Do you think that the sort of Jethro Tull experimental prog rock from the way back when has informed any of what you're doing. I'm very excited to hear that you're incorporating flute in this experiment, which suggests some see-through line. You know, it's it's there. I mean, I've listened to a whole lot of um, pop stuff as a kid and and um, I don't much anymore, although it, 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 you know, you can't avoid it and I still enjoy it in certain ways. Um, but I think that's always just sat there in the background of like the, the music that first got me excited. I think this is true for all of us. The music that first gets you excited kind of sticks with you. And, and I think it's, it's present in certain ways. I mean, there's some ways that I like to think about energy and rhythm and, and maybe Tamar to a certain extent, there's something about the, the like high production value of pop music that, I've always, as a as a person working with acoustic instruments, have been slightly jealous of that you can just fine tune and manipulate the sound and close mic things. And you know, I absolutely love what we do in the concert hall, and I'm not going to stop doing it. But but I'm also this is new for me, as I said. But I'm kind of really attracted to what's possible in a studio situation. I yeah. know you have Kristen right there, so I'm not trying to steal anybody's spot. But if you ever need anybody to pretend to be Jethro Tull for a day. I will send you my number and I will be there as quickly as reasonably possible. Thank you. You know, thanks to you guys. I, I've, I've got the numbers of several super talented flute players. So I, I feel very, I, I know I'm in good shape when it comes to that. 
sort of back on our on our script for this afternoon. You have collaborated with a lot of artists over your career so far. And as part of FNMC, we're always really interested in the different types of relationships that composers like to cultivate with their performers and, and their collaborators. Can you talk a little bit about your ideal relationship with a collaborator? There's kind of two kinds of collaboration that I've been involved with a lot. I mean, one is with performers, which I expect is more what you're asking asking about it but also I've, I've thankfully been because of the opera engagement been collaborating with people from other disciplines yeah and that that is so thrilling the first time I saw one of a staging rehearsal for one of my pieces just it was like it was like this three-dimensional thing became four-dimensional or something like it just it was just wild to me what can be brought to bear when disciplines collaborate so that's that's hugely thrilling but I, I'm looking for that in my interactions with performers as well most of my collaborations with commissioning partners has been kind of hands-off from the from the standpoint of the commissioner you know here's what we want you to do I present a score and what I'm always looking for is feedback from that point. I've had some things, especially when I'm working with colleagues at my institution where they're, you know, uh, two doors down, that's th that there's some consultation during the process. But I think I've appreciated that performers I work with seem to trust what I'm doing, you know, ask for the piece, step back, let me do my thing, let me ask questions as need be. But when I present a, a quote unquote final piece, that's what I'm really looking for feedback. And I've tried to say this as, as often as I can, you know, anything that's awkward, anything that you feel like you can add, et cetera, please let me know. And there's a, a balancing act in presenting scores. I really love when performers find something to bring to the music that I, you know, that's surprising to me in some way. Usually that's in the realm of kind of expressive ideas, tempo fluctuations, that kind of thing. But there's, there's something about, you know, holding the instrument in your hand that's that's special. And I want people to own the piece, whether it's a premiere or not. I want people to really feel like they own it. What kind of feedback other than, I mean, you mentioned, oh, this is awkward, or maybe this doesn't lay very well on the instrument. Composers say they want feedback a lot, but I think Nicole and I have learned through discussion that as performers, we're not always sure what that means. <laughs> what would you be wanting? Do you have any any sense of what that would look like? Yeah, I could understand from your perspective, that could be really tricky because like, you know, I hate these 20 bars is a hard thing to say to somebody. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, obviously so, you want it to be productive. So I guess I'm asking yeah, yeah, what yeah. is productive <laughs> feedback so that I, I don't pull a I hate these 20 bars. And uh, thankfully, I've not had that, at least not to my face. You know, knowing what really works well is helpful. It's helpful for me be making adjustments to the piece, but it's also helpful, certainly for, for any future work. I'm recalling one wind symphony piece many, many years ago. There was a consortium commission, and the, the group that premiered it gave me some feedback about kind of the sense of pacing and and this was a long time ago and I feel like I wasn't as experienced a, a composer as I am, but I took it to heart and reordered sections of the piece, just kind of the sense that, you know, I think it was put very nicely. This, the, the, 
this section goes on for a very long time at the same tempo. It's kind of taxing. If there was some variety in here, it could maybe flow better. And I think they were maybe right. I, you know, I took it to heart and, and, and reworked the piece. I was with somebody who had a good relationship with, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and you have to be, you know, I think that would be hard to say to a stranger in certain ways, but I'm looking for that. And certainly in opera, I found myself making rather significant adjustments occasionally. Ideally, when you're presenting an opera, you're getting a chance to workshop things. And the couple of times that I've had a chance to do that, it's been very helpful because you don't know how things are going to flow with the idea of staging until you kind of uh, really try it out. And obviously, that's a highly collaborative thing. I personally like it. I like having people help me make the best thing that I can make. When you started talking, you mentioned sort of delivering a a final draft. Do you do much interacting with your commissioners during the writing process? Or do you prefer to have most of a piece to hand to a person and say, here's the thing, let's fix it now? The way that I work, I don't know if it's, it's like things are sort of sounds silly they're not done until they're done sure um, but like the i i tend to work in different parts of pieces hmm. i don't write measure one to measure 500 i i'm i write in various chunks and stitch things together and that sort of thing so i don't typically have a kind of really great sense of the whole thing until i'm pretty close to having the whole thing I do reach out with questions, certainly can you do X, Y, or Z kind of questions. And I guess in some cases I've asked about, you know, the, the if it's an ensemble, sort of the level of ability of certain sections and things like that. But largely it's, again, it's, it's I do my thing, pass it along, but I, you know, it's final in quotes. And I'm, I don't finalize things until I've had a chance to have other people take a look. I, we've talked to a lot of composers over the course of of starting this podcast, and it's it's fascinating to me how something where the end result is kind of the same can have so many paths to that end result. And you teach composition yeah. and have for for quite some time. What is your sense of of how common your process is versus other processes that may exist? I can't tell you how often I like. I do things and realize if my students did this, I would tell them they're doing it wrong. But it's so common for for when students are writing pieces specifically for their colleagues or you know for, for specific performers that I'll say, you know, have you asked Susie about this passage? You know, like, be, you know, when I see something that looks like it's going to be challenging. So I, I definitely, my teaching encourage collaboration. Like I say, I do do that when I think something's really going to be tricky but i i think there's you know as many strategies as there are composers it's really interesting i think i've i've more of the commission interactions i've had have mirrored what you are describing but i am working with a composer now who sends me eight or nine bars at a time and won't do anything else until i say like yeah or no or i don't know what you're asking me like it's the the feedback is a much more vital part of their process, which has been a weird learning curve for me over the last couple of months. Yeah, I, I could expect that's valuable. Again, and like I said, for, for me, the problem is, is that I don't, you know, like there's a kind of final pass through phase where, I, you know, at, at almost no point is there eight or nine bars 
that I can say this is going to stick. Sure. <laughs> I, I sort of don't know until I get, I like to fold in connections and premonitions and all sorts of things and what happens before and after impacts what's happening now, all that kind of stuff. So, um, and it may be that your, your collaborator here gives you something wildly different at the end. And, you know, I could see where the feedback's helpful. We're not to the end, yeah. so I don't know yet. <laughs> yeah, update us. You'll have to update us on that one, Elizabeth. Before we move on, when when I asked the original question about collaborators, you were right, I was asking about commissioners, but you mentioned the collaboration process in the opera and you kind of got excited. What's different? Can you tell us about what's different? What you what got you so excited as you were as you were telling us? Um well, it's been a lot of fun. And as I say, like, so I had an opera done, chamber opera done um, somewhat recently in Boston and and just as a, like a tiny example. And it had to do with a Havdalah candle, which is this, uh, at the end of Shabbat in traditional um, Jewish households, sometimes people do a Havdalah ceremony, which is a braided blue and white candle. That was a metaphor for other things going on in the opera. I won't um, get into it, but it, it also had to do with family dynamics. And I kind of realized only after watching the video months later that the that the costume designer had dressed the mother in white and the son and daughter in blue. And so that they had like mirrored this like, right? I got chills when I kind of realized, this. I mean, it's so smart. And I've seen stage directors and librettists give me that kind of like really interesting usage of their own art that's in service of or in collaborative services wrong in in conjunction with what I'm presenting. And I I just I find that so attractive. Did the costume designer not discuss or did the costume designer discuss symbolism with you at all? Or did they just sort of go off into their own art? Yeah, no, they just did the did their thing. I saw it on the, the, this was one of these things that you, I was there just for the premiere. So it was like, you know, showed up and, and it was fully staged and presented beautifully and all that kind of thing, but yeah. Cool. I, I used to love to read those synopsis uh, after episodes of Mad Men. I don't know if you ever watched that show, but they would, there would be, there was this article that would show up on one of my favorite news websites every week after the episode and talk about the symbolism in the characters costuming. And I, part of me was like, there's no way that anyone did this on purpose. You're just grasping at straws. And yet I read it anyway, maybe, <laughs> maybe on purpose. Oh, I'm sure this was on purpose. I love sure it. it was. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there are whole classes in this stuff. It would be interesting if you if you could have known ahead of time. I wonder if that would have affected any final touches you put in the music, you know, if there could have been a kind of symbiosis. It never seems to happen that way, though. I mean, the, the costumers need the final product, I think, to do that work. But I have had a couple of productions that I've been where it's been more of a kind of collaborative team thing. And we've got some sense of what each other are doing. There is a, but of course, there's a kind of order of events. I always need the libretto done before I start writing the music. Sure. The music needs to be there, et cetera. But I, I, I've loved it the couple of times I've had the chance at the conceptual phase to at least start plotting these things out. You've you've hinted at this in, in various ways, you know, throughout throughout our discussion so far. But do you have I'm thinking uh, of you as an artist and also as a, a veteran teacher who is helping young composers craft their own art. 
Um, do you have a philosophy that drives your artistic life or a set of beliefs that sort of serve as your North Star as a composer and as a musician? Yeah, kind of. The thing that I've often said in situations similar to this, I guess I'd say it again, is of the belief that the world doesn't need more beautiful things so much as it needs an expanded conception of what is beautiful. Mm. And so I think what I'm trying to do is because I really do want my music to move people but i don't want to rehash something exactly that's been done before i i i veer close to other stuff i mean i'll I'll freely admit that and that's very much intentional that i think i think there's something about familiarity that matters a lot in the listening experience but i don't want to just redo something so there's a i'm aiming for a kind of almost sense of like i almost know this or this feels close to something that that I can grasp, but still has some strangeness in it. That's the kind of experience that I appreciate most as a listener. So I think that's what I'm trying to create. And it's a it's I you know I I, I think everything that we do is that composers do is tricky. This is tricky too. That playing in this terrain where you're veering towards but not quite touching various stylistic ideas you know that's that's the playground i like to play in but there's you know dangers in that playground you know a a critic can easily say things like pastiche or derivative or whatever and I'm, i'm sort of i would rather take that risk and try to make something that's eerily almost like something you know than to try to do something that's wildly inventive and unfamiliar i admire greatly people whose work goes in that direction, but that's not how I operate. What advice would you give your younger self? Luck has a crazy amount to do with our outcomes in life, I think. Um, and I've been really lucky in certain ways. So, I'm, you know, this is kind of snarky. I, I think like, my younger self, I would say, don't worry, it's going to be okay. You know, there's there's things that professional opportunities or whatever that haven't happened that I I, you know, wish it happened or I think I wish it happened but like where I am now I got a really good job I'm in a very healthy long-term marriage my young adult children are all terrific like and I'd be a fool to complain about this like things are good so I don't I I wouldn't I don't know that it would be possible to change anything but I wouldn't to young artists young composers I could you know, I, I I got all sorts of stuff. I tell them, I tell them stuff all the time. One of the things that I didn't do was really keep up my performance chops at a concert level. And I can make all sorts of like, explain all sorts of reasons for that. I became a parent very young, you know, you, you can only do so much, that kind of thing. But um, not being like an active part of the performers club I think has left me feeling like there's certain aspects of the profession that I'm not sort of keyed into the way that I know other composers are, you know, in an ideal world, maybe I would have kept that up. And the self-promotion thing is not something I've ever loved or liked or done much of. And, you know, clearly that's part of the business. And even if it's a, a kind of difficult to stomach part of the business, in retrospect, more of that could have been helpful but again you know being where i am in life right now feel lucky and grateful and yeah do you think the self-promotion has become a bigger part of 
our business or do you think it's just that we see more of it with social media it feels uh, like it takes up a lot of brain space in our students lives yeah i i sense that too um i don't know how effective a lot of what i see my students and even colleagues doing in yeah. a, in a sort of social media space is in terms of actually promoting the work so i you know i think that there's a kind of time suck with that technology generally that's um that is what it is but i think it's always been part of the business uh unfortunately um i think there's you know stories about people in centuries past having to be pretty darn assertive about um getting their work out there too so yeah good point what and again you know as as a as a composer or as a teacher or just as a human being answer this however you want what what are some of the biggest challenges you think you're facing right now this has always been true for me and i like it but it's it's like interested in a lot of different things in a lot of different directions and and so adding this this recording thing into the mix of things that i'm interested in is is exciting but it's you know i sort of always feel like i'm pulled in a lot of different directions um, and that's self-imposed when nobody's doing it to me. I mean, it's just, there's a lot of things that are interesting. You know, I, I like painting on a big canvas. I like working with large ensembles and, and long pieces as a kind of, that's, that's the stuff I seek out the most. But when chamber music opportunities come my way, I take them instantly. I'm just, I'm, I'm really interested in all of the things that can be done with pencil and paper. I think that's probably the biggest challenge. It's not new. Again, I don't sort of regret being kind of eclectic in my interests. There are composers who are quite successful who hone in on a thing, on a style, on a on a genre or whatever. But that's just, that's not been appealing to me. I don't have the patience for that or something. Well, I think we're lucky for that too, actually. And the, the variety is wonderful in your catalog. Speaking of variety, You've mentioned working on an opera. Is there anything else that's currently on your workbench? Uh, current things is is finishing up this recording project, and I'm daydreaming about the next one and all sorts of one of the things that's kind of amazing about the the recording studio, especially the recording studio, kind of in collaboration with um, other artists, is it's literally limitless and. That's maybe the newest thing for me, because even when I'm writing for a full symphony orchestra and I get 20 minutes on a concert program, it's still finite in a variety of ways. And to have this thing that's that's got just has no boundaries, I have to put the boundaries in myself. Right. But mm-hmm. so that's that's kind of great and terrifying. Um, and that's that's a back burner. I've just been speaking with a colleague about a extended song cycle voice and piano on a Whitman text that has to do with it's uh, crossing Brooklyn Ferry and I'm I'm leaning towards doing the whole thing and that has to do with this interest in thinking very long term about the consequences of our actions Whitman posits these people far into the future sharing the experiences that he's having and I think it's just really wise now given where we are societally, technologically to be. I'd love it if we were all thinking about things 50 and 500 years from now and not five months from now. 
we'd probably act pretty differently. So uh, whatever we can do as artists to encourage that, that's sort of, that's uh, that's on my mind. Um, I'm talking to people about a consortium wind symphony commission. I want to try something for a slightly uh, younger groups than I've written for. I've tended to be doing the the grade six hard as hell stuff. And um, <laughs> I've got an idea for something that I think can work for younger players that I'm excited about. So, Well, on the heels of such a detailed answer, you may not like my next question, but we've really enjoyed asking some of our, our guests if they could manifest a dream project or a dream collaboration, do you have a sense of what or who that would be for you? Yeah, well, again, it's it's not gonna be a short list, right? But I've got, I don't know, five or six opera plots that are, or opera ideas that are sort of always floating around because I, I really love that medium. I'm really into concertos when that's a possibility. I just um, just got recording from a premiere of a piano concerto that was done in Europe this summer, which was terrific. And my next big performance is a, a piece for voice and orchestra that's being done in um, October. And that was conceived kind of as a concerto for a baritone. And, you know, and I've just, I've, I've loved when I've been able to do that. I think there's something, uh, something that works for me about that medium. So yes, flute concerto would be terrific. And and others as well. I'm I'm that again. I like the big canvas, and I I really like working with the orchestra, which is maybe a little masochistic because it's really hard to get orchestra pieces to be played again. Um, but I just it's it's a uh, it's a dream to be able to work with with large ensembles. So. Sure, and we're talking about dream projects, so masochism doesn't come into play. Well, Paul, we always like to end our interviews with one of our favorite questions. What are three pieces of music you're listening to right now? With the the song cycle in mind, I've been listening to a fair amount of Arvo Parrot recently, which isn't new to me, but I was actually kind of curious about anything that he'd done for solo voice. And I've been kind of obsessing a little bit over, he's got a... a piece on a Robert Burns poem, uh, My Heart's in the Highlands, that was originally countertenor in Oregon. A lot of female identifying singers uh, do it as well. And it's this, it's just like the the right kind of simple. Like it's like a lot of his music, you could practically transcribe it in real time. And like, right. and you know, and a snobby professor like me might just like dismiss that because it's so simple on the surface, but it's just, it's so poignant. And so I'm I'm fairly obsessed with that and trying to trying to crack that code a little bit um, because that's a kind of sound world that I'm finding really attractive because of the kind of extended concept album thing that I've been thinking about. Really enjoyed Sarah Kirkland Snyder's work, the the Unforgiven in particular. It's a, a kind of large song cycle that she put out I don't know six seven eight years ago been listening to that a lot recently and it's one of the things i really appreciate is maybe it's back to the pop thing it's not pop music but it's got a if you listen multiple times and i think this is really kind of the lesson the tunes get stuck in your head like it's which can happen with you know whatever schubert or you know um, other composers as well but it's a it's a really interesting thing to me that she managed to write this really sophisticated gorgeous intricate work that also is is sits beautifully for the voice and 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 sticks with you 
And I, I guess the third thing, and maybe it's back to the repeated listening thing, but I had this funny experience. My 19-year-old has been home for the summer. She's about to move back into an apartment for her third year of college. And she was asking me about musical taste. It's been interesting to watch a 19-year-old's tastes kind of go backwards in time where she's starting to listen to a lot of the stuff that I listened to when I was her age. And I, I asked the device, I can't say the name right now, or it'll start playing things, to play the best hits of 1973. And we just had the best time. And there's just something like, <laughs> and it was so funny to me because I was thinking when I was her age, if somebody had played music from 50 years prior, we'd be talking about the best hits of 1938. And I'm sure there was some good stuff, but like, I don't know. <laughs> there was something like, <laughs> It's nostalgic, but there's something about like familiarity and the way that some things have gotten canonized that I find really fascinating. Mm -hmm. And maybe it's again back to the like the just the right kind of simplicity. There you go. Greatest hits of 1973. Do you have one from 1973? Uh, so many. Uh, Place Wrong Time by Dr. John. There's a bunch of Elton John in there. And like Ooh. Good Your Road was so fun. This is such good like sing along music. Yeah. Huh. We had the best time cooking, I'll tell you. Well, maybe there is something to the 1970s. I don't know. Um, you know, it's it's funny. Like, I, I haven't kept up on pop music very much. I just I feel completely out of touch. And I and I got out of touch a long time ago. But I think it's it, there's a lot to be said about just exposure and repeated listening. And that's influenced the way that I think a lot. And maybe this is why I'm finding Herbal Parrot kind of interesting, because he builds that in. Right? He kind of tells you the rules for the piece right off the bat so that you sort of know how to listen as you go forward. That's something that happens when you've got things on sort of repeated radio play, and that happened to be the stuff I was exposed to a lot. So sure, it it, it sounds like inevitable and right to me. Yeah. yeah, it could be. Yeah, me too, I suppose. Yeah. Well, Paul, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for talking with us today. Thank you. I've enjoyed this. And I enjoy what, what you do. I've enjoyed your podcast and appreciate all the effort you do on behalf of composers and getting new music out there. Well, well, thank you for your support, too. Mm -hmm. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Music Crush. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also support the podcast, read show notes, and learn more about FNMC by visiting www.flutenewmusicconsortium.com. 